Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I am, as I am every week, stoked to preach. (laughs) I love the word. I love the gospel. I love being here with you, and I hope you feel the same. If you would find your way to Galatians chapter uh, 2, we are in Galatians chapter 2 this morning, verses 1 through 10. As you're finding your way there, let's bow in prayer one last time and ask God's blessing upon this time. Our God and our Father, we are gathered here this morning because we believe that though the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, that to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Lord, we who believe here this morning, we have been saved by your spirit through the foolishness of the gospel, which is not foolishness at all. It is in the minds of those who are perishing. To some, it is a stumbling block in the way of their human pride. To some, it is foolishness and irrelevant as they cannot see what in the world A man from Nazareth dying on a cross some 2,000 years ago has, has to do with them. But for we who are the called, this message is to us the power of God, the wisdom of God unto salvation. It is, bar none, the greatest news that we have ever heard. And I pray that it would be so for every person in this room. For those who come in this morning and the message of the gospel has become stale, would you make it fresh? For those who come in this morning and the message of the gospel is yet foolishness and yet a stumbling block and yet makes no sense to them because they are not born of the Spirit, would you transform them from natural men into spiritual men this morning through the power of the gospel? Would you awake them out of death and into life and bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We ask both in the lives of those who are the saints and in the lives of those who are still outside the realm of your grace looking in. We ask that today your grace would be poured out in power upon them. Everyone, would you do this? And in so doing, would you glorify your son Jesus Christ in our midst? This is our prayer. And all of God's people gathered this morning said, Amen. Well, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, as you heard just a few moments ago, Paul describes a trip which he made to Jerusalem sometime prior to his first missionary journey. If you're following along and trying to put the letter of Galatians into that timeline of the book of Acts, the trip that we're talking about takes place near the end of Acts chapter 11. Sometime prior to his first missionary journey, on which journey Paul had planted the churches of Galatia. And in order for us to understand why Paul recounts this visit and why it is relevant to the current situation going on in Galatia that Paul is writing to address, I think we really need to step back some 2,000 years and we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the Galatian Christian who is receiving this letter from the pen of the Apostle Paul. And so let's put on our... uh, 
sanctified imaginations this morning and go back 2,000 years to modern-day Turkey, to maybe Iconium or Lystra or Derby, one of the cities of southern Galatia, around the year A.D. 46. Now, if you lived in one of those Galatian cities in that day and in that time, your entire life was surrounded by a plethora of religious and philosophical options from which to choose. There was the pantheon of Greek pagan deities. Zeus was big in Galatia. Artemis, Apollo, Athena, Demeter, and all of the rest. Greek pagan religion came with its elaborate mythology of creation and cosmic struggle. It had its temples. It had its idols. It had its cultic worship. There were the various philosophical schools that would meet in the marketplaces and in the Acropolis of the certain cities. And they would begin to debate the various philosophies of the Greco-Roman culture. The Epicureans, the Stoics, and many other besides. Each with their unique views of life and their unique practices. Running the spectrum from rank hedonism on the one end to a stark asceticism on the other end. And anywhere in between you could have chosen from one of those. And then there were the Jews. Judaism with its monotheistic foundation, the one true and living God who created all things and sustains all things by the word of his power. Many Galatian cities had a sizable population of diaspora Jews, the dispersed Jews who would have had their synagogues in every city where they would have read the Torah and they would have celebrated their feasts and their traditions. But one day, a certain Jewish man named Paul comes into town and begins preaching in the Jewish synagogue. And before long, Paul has caused quite the stir, and he's been tossed out of the synagogue. So he begins preaching in the marketplace, and you go to see what this whole thing is about. You go to hear him as he preaches, and he begins, he begins to describe how the God of the Jews sent forth His only begotten Son into the world to be the Messiah, not only of the Jews, but of all the nations. This Son of God, whom Paul calls Jesus, was born in Judea during the reign of Caesar Augustus. And He performed many signs and many wonders as He walked throughout Judea, proclaiming the kingdom of God. But He was crucified on a Roman cross during a feast of the Jews in Jerusalem. And then to your absolute astonishment, Paul claims that this Jesus who is called Christ was raised from the dead three days later, ascended into heaven, and is seated at this God's right hand and is coming again to judge the earth and to save his people. What's more, Paul says that this Jesus' death upon the cross was not an accident. It was not the result of political turmoil or a religious dispute. But was an atoning sacrifice to God for all of the sins of all who believe in his name. And then Paul announces to all of the gathered crowd that anyone who believes in this Jesus will receive from him the forgiveness of sins and a place in the kingdom which Jesus is coming again to establish. Now as you listen, the crowd begins to stir becoming enraged, shouting angrily at Paul, but not you. You feel strangely drawn 
to what Paul has said as if summoned by an irresistible force. This gospel, as Paul keeps calling his message, it makes sense to you in a way that nothing else has ever before made sense. In fact, it sounds to you like the greatest news that has ever come upon your ears. So you go up to Paul when he has finished speaking, you tell him, I want to know more. And you're not the only one. Many are coming, both Jews and Greeks, telling Paul the same thing. And so Paul gathers you together and he takes you away from the marketplace and he leads you into a home in which he was staying. And he begins to explain to you the story of God from creation to the fall, to the redemption, to the consummation of all things. Everything that Paul teaches, you receive into the very depths of your being with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And so does the rest. And when Paul has finished his teaching, he leads you and the rest down to the river and he and his disciple baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You and the rest of the believers begin meeting together regularly in this house to pray and to listen to Paul as he teaches you about Jesus and about his gospel and about his church and about trials and tribulations and about the kingdom that is to come. But one day Paul stands up and he tells you with great sadness that he must depart. The Lord is calling him on. But he tells you not to fear for he is leaving behind capable disciples whom he calls elders. Who will continue to teach and to lead the church in his absence. And all is well for a while. The gospel, the word of the Lord continues to spread. And many come to faith and are baptized and are gathered into this group which is now called the church. But one day, not many months after Paul's departure, strange men from Jerusalem come into town. And they are present when the church gathers together for worship. And they claim to represent the apostles, the real ones, from Jerusalem. And when the time for the teaching comes, one of them stands up and begins to speak. And he begins by commending you for your faith in Christ and for your service to God. But then he begins to express Grave concerns that the Gentiles in the midst of which you are one have not yet been circumcised. And that you're not keeping the Sabbath. And that you're eating the wrong things and you're not doing this and you're doing that. And he says, do you not know that God commanded Abraham to circumcise every male in his household and that any uncircumcised person is excluded from the covenant of God and is cut off from the midst of his people. Do you not know that this is explicitly written in the Torah? Why then have you not been circumcised? Why do you not keep the Sabbath and the feasts and the other ordinances of the law? Do you not, not, do you not know that God has given these ordinances to his people through Moses to be observed throughout all generations? For thus it is written in the Torah. Listen, people, if you want to be right with God, you've got to be circumcised and you've got to keep his law. The church is thrown into an uproar. Finally, some bold gentleman in the back 
He calls out, but Paul did not tell us to be circumcised. Paul did not tell us to keep the law. Paul, Paul told us that all God required of us to be forgiven of our sin and granted the gift of everlasting life was just to believe in the name of Jesus, in his death and in his resurrection. Well, another one of the Jerusalem delegation who walk with a certain air of authority, he stands up. And he motions with his hands for silence and he says, ah, yes, Paul. Well, let me tell you a little something about Paul. Paul isn't even a real apostle. Paul was not called by Jesus like the twelve. Paul did not walk with Jesus from the time of his baptism on to the time of his ascension like the twelve. Paul was not gathered with the church in the upper room at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell and the church was born, like the twelve. Paul had some conversion on the road to Damascus in which he claims that the Lord Jesus appeared to him and appointed him as an apostle, but to be perfectly honest with you, there are not a few of us who doubt that story. But the twelve apostles in Jerusalem, they were called together. They walked together. They were appointed together as apostles. And nobody doubts their apostleship. Listen, if Paul really were an apostle, then he would preach the same gospel that is preached by the apostles in Jerusalem. By Peter and James and John and the rest who have the real credentials. But Paul, when Paul went out from Jerusalem among the Gentiles, he changed his gospel. And he began preaching that it was not necessary to be circumcised, that it was not necessary to keep the law, when God has expressly commanded such things in his word. After all, Jesus himself said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. You've been misled by Paul. And there are many in Jerusalem, even among the apostles, who are very concerned about this law-free gospel which Paul is proclaiming. So we've been sent here to tell you the truth about the true gospel in order that you truly may be justified in the sight of God and truly be included among God's covenant people. Now, if you are a Galatian Christian, you can imagine the confusion, the doubt, the fear that is felt by every Gentile in the congregation. Do you see where it's coming from? You walked in that morning thinking you were forgiven, and all of a sudden these authorities come in there and tell you that you're not yet. You walked in this morning thinking that you are part of God's people, and the authorities come in and tell you that you're not yet. You came in thinking that you were among the saved. And the boys from Jerusalem came in telling you that you're not yet. Listen, this is not a question of minimal importance. Rather, what we're dealing with with is the most vital and pressing issue of all of human experience. And I want you to know that it was felt at a deep gut level by the Galatians. Am I or am I not right with God? Paul told you that you were right with God, that is, justified, 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These men are telling you that you're not right with God unless you've been circumcised and come underneath the Jewish law. And both of them are quoting the same Bible. So who's telling the truth? Which one are you going to believe? And how do you know? That's the issue that lies behind Galatians 2, 1 through 10. This is the reason for Paul's defensive posture and his angry tone. See, many in the Galatian churches were won over by these false teachers and their false false gospel. And Paul is writing to them in a desperate attempt to stop them. Telling them that if they walk away from this gospel, they are walking away from Christ. And they are walking away from their only hope of salvation. He is writing to urge upon them the significance of the decision that they are making. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. Paul's Judaizing opponents were telling the churches in Paul's absence that Paul was a second rate apostle with a second hand gospel. That Paul had corrupted the true gospel which was taught by the true apostles in Jerusalem. And thus far in his letter in Galatians chapter 1, Paul has offered one primary argument in defense of his ministry and his message. Saying that, you know what, I didn't receive my gospel from men. I received my gospel by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Therefore, my gospel, regardless of whoever says it's not, is the true gospel and there is no other. All other gospels are false gospels and anyone who preaches or believes a false gospel, a gospel contrary to the one that I received directly from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ is under God's curse. That's his argument in Galatians chapter 1, that both His ministry and his message came directly from Jesus Christ and needs no approval from Jerusalem or from anywhere else. Number two, though, the second argument that he makes, we're going to begin to work our way through in Galatians 2, 1 through 10 this morning. He's going to introduce a further line of argument in defense of his ministry and his message. And he does so by means of two statements that are written on you on the back of your bulletins. Number one, in verses one through five, I know it says one through six, but I made a mistake. (laughs) First time ever. In verses one through five, Paul is going to say that, you know what, I took my apostleship and I took my gospel to the experts in Jerusalem. It's not as if I've never been tried. And number two, in verses six through ten, when the Jerusalem apostles saw And examined my apostleship and my gospel, they affirmed both. Therefore, the Judaizers claim in the midst of the churches of Galatia that I am an inferior apostle with an inferior message is false. Far from being at odds with Jerusalem, Paul has Jerusalem's full affirmation and full endorsement. That's the point of verses 1 through 10 of Galatians chapter 2. Now, what I want to do this morning, I want to walk through those verses. I'm going to offer some observations and some explanations as we go. And then I'm going to conclude by giving you five implications that we can draw out of verses 1 through 10 of Galatians chapter 2. Five implications which have relevance, not just in the first century for the Galatian churches, but here in the 21st century for First Baptist Nixa. 
All right, so in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul begins to recount a visit that he made to Jerusalem not long before his first missionary journey began, which took him to Galatia. He writes, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. All right, so this is Paul's second visit to Jerusalem. The first one being that 15-day visit that occurred three years after his conversion that he talked about in the second half of Galatians 1. The second visit, he says, occurred 14 years later, which likely, if you're trying to form a timeline, means 14 years, not after the first visit, but 14 years after his conversion on the, on the road to Damascus in which he saw the revelation of Jesus Christ. This means that the visit that he's mentioning here in Galatians 2, 1 through 10 is the same as the Jerusalem visit which is mentioned in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, when Paul and Barnabas went up from Antioch to Jerusalem because of a prophecy that had been made that a famine was coming upon the land of Judea and they took some aid for the saints who were in Jerusalem with them. Evidently, that was not Paul's only purpose in going. The reason for this visit, the primary reason, in fact, Paul says, was because of a revelation. Simply put, God told Paul to go, which is important for this reason. Are you with me? Paul was not summoned to Jerusalem to stand trial. Paul asked for this meeting. The meeting was at his request, in his initiative. And the purpose of the visit was to to submit to the apostles for their inspection the gospel which he was preaching among the Gentiles, namely the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So I want to make a couple of observations in verses 1 through 2 that will help us to understand what Paul's doing. Number one, I want you to notice that Paul is presenting to the apostles his law-free, grace-alone, faith-alone, Christ-alone gospel, and he's doing so, watch this, for their inspection, but not for their approval. In other words, I don't get the idea, based on what Paul has just said in Galatians 1 or anything else that we know about Paul, that Paul thinks he's the one who's standing trial here. Do you see it? Everyone else may think that he's on trial, but I think Paul's take on the situation is that he's just putting Jerusalem on trial to make sure that they're on the right track. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul wanted their approval, but not because he had any doubts that he was wrong. Or that his gospel was somehow false. He wanted their approval because he wanted unity with the mother church in Jerusalem. He wanted their approval so that then he could write a letter like this and tell the churches that anyone who's claiming that Paul preaches a different gospel than Jerusalem is wrong. But I want you to make no mistake, if Paul and Barnabas and Titus had gone up to Jerusalem, presented their gospel for inspection, and the Jerusalem apostles had said, We really think you ought to be circumcising the Galatians. I think Paul would have hurled the very same anathemas upon the Jerusalem apostles that he's hurling out towards Galatia. He is that convinced that he's right. Second observation. When Paul says that he was afraid that he might be running or had run in vain, I think it's wise, again, based on the context, 
to take that not to mean that he had doubts about the gospel that he was preaching. Because whatever doubts that he might have had were settled once for all when Jesus appeared to him and taught him the gospel. Rather, I think what he means is that he knows that the, the apostles, plural, including him, but also the Jerusalem apostles, they're the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20, isn't that what he says? The church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And if the foundation of the church is cracked, it cannot hold up the temple that he's building. If the foundation is cracked, what chance does the church have of making it? What chance does the church have of being constructed? And what is already constructed will collapse for lack of a unified and solid foundation. I think what Paul means by fearing that he may have run in vain is that he knows that the church needs a unified apostolic gospel. And if he goes to Jerusalem and finds out that they're different from him, he's going to try and fix them. How do you know? Because that's what he's going to do next week in the very next passage in Galatians chapter 2 when Peter steps out of line with his gospel. Verses 3 through 5. But not even Titus who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Now, when reading verse 1, you may have wondered why Paul brought Titus along. I mean, Barnabas, yes, right? Bigwig. But Titus, who's he, at least at this point in the church's mission? He's a nobody. Though the best explanation that I've run across was offered by John Piper, who says this, very interesting thought. He says that Paul brought Titus along in order to demonstrate that what they're discussing has to do with real people. Like this isn't some ivory tower theological debate. We're not playing theological games. Real people need to know the real gospel because they have real sin that really needs to be forgiven. And so he brings along Titus, you know, Titus the Gentile, Titus the Greek, Titus the uncircumcised, and get this, according to Paul, Titus the full blood brother in Jesus Christ by faith alone. That's why he brings Titus. We're not, we're not tweaking little doctrinal subpoints. We're talking about flesh and blood believers for whom Christ has died and whom Christ accepts freely by his grace through faith. That's, what, that's why he brings Titus along. And if the apostles in Jerusalem will accept Titus and embrace him as a full-blown brother in Christ, though uncircumcised, then Paul and the Galatians will have their answer to this question. So the stage is set. Paul presented both his gospel and his convert to the apostles in Jerusalem for their inspection. Not approval, inspection. And the false brethren, who we're going to talk about in just a moment, they're howling outside the doors for Titus to be circumcised. But Paul writes to the Galatians and he says, you know what, we stood firm. We did not yield to their heresy for even an hour. And we did it for you. We did it so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved 
for every believer, not only Jew, but also Gentile. And when the apostles embraced Titus and did not compel him to be circumcised, Paul knew that the gospel of free grace had won out over the Judaizing heresy. What a day that must have been for Paul. Not, I'm right, but I'm right, and the church in Jerusalem knows it. And now we can move forward with the foundation sufficiently laid. Verses 6 through 10. Paul begins to detail his private encounter with the apostles. He says, but from those who are of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me, for God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. Does it strike you that Paul's being... Like a tad disrespectful. It struck me that way this week. I want to see if I can offer an explanation as to why that is. I think that Paul is at pains to assert his independence from the Jerusalem apostles. Both in terms of his calling and in terms of his message. You remember what the the opponents in Galatia were, were saying about Paul. They were claiming to be from Jerusalem, representing the apostles, and they were contradicting Paul's message, and they were casting doubt upon Paul's apostolic credentials by saying that Paul was not called in the same way as the rest of the twelve, and therefore he's sort of a second-level apostle if he's an apostle at all. And so in verse 6, Paul basically is writing to tell the Galatian Christians, what is important is not that I can trace my apostolic credentials back to Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. What's important is not whether I walked with Jesus and the rest of the twelve for those three years between his baptism and his ascension into heaven. What is important is not that I was gathered with the rest of the church in the upper room when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost and the church was born. I was made an apostle by the direct command of the Son of God, and I I received my gospel by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. And so I don't care if they have a better reputation and a better apostolic lineage than me. I don't care. God doesn't care, and you shouldn't care. That's his point. So he's distancing himself. He's not being disrespectful to the Apostles, he's being disrespectful to those who thought that the apostolic reputation was all there was. And by the way, he says, when I presented my gospel and said it before the apostles, they contributed nothing to me. They didn't fix my gospel because it wasn't broken. And they didn't add to my gospel or improve my gospel because it didn't lack anything. Far from discrediting Paul's apostolic ministry or fixing Paul's gospel, the Jerusalem apostles embraced his ministry and endorsed his gospel. Saying, you know what, Paul? This is the very same gospel that we believe and that we proclaim. Verse 7. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked through Peter... In his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing also 
I was eager to do. In short, Paul had received what he had come down to Jerusalem to secure. Namely, the recognition of the Jerusalem apostles that he, Paul, was an apostle with the same divine calling and the same divine authority as they. And an affirmation that Paul's gospel, his law-free, grace-alone, faith-alone, Christ-alone gospel was the same gospel that they preached and that they believed. And so Paul writes all of this, verses 1 through 10, and he sends it to the Galatians because he intends for them to infer that then whoever these men are who are throwing the churches into confusion, they do not represent Jerusalem. And they do not preach the true gospel. And if they do not preach the true gospel, then they must be accursed. So that's what Paul is doing in verses 1 through 10. That's the flow of his argument. I want to conclude our time this morning by pulling out from those verses five implications for us. First Baptist Church, Nixa, here in 2014. All right? You have these written on the back of your bulletins. Let's just walk through these one at a time. Number one, we learn from these verses that to add to the gospel of Christ is to lose the gospel entirely. You can't improve on perfection. To improve on perfection is to destroy the thing which once was perfect. And I get this primarily from Galatians 2.4, where Paul refers to his opponents in Galatia as false Brethren. Brethren because they claimed to be Christians and false because they weren't Christians at all. Now I've hit on this point twice already in the first two sermons in this series, but I think it bears repeating and you'll probably hear it again. The opponents that Paul is writing to refute, the the opponents who were clamoring for Titus to be circumcised, they believed in the necessity of divine grace. They believed in the necessity of faith in Christ. They believed in the necessity of the death and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that they also believed that the works of the law, namely circumcision, were necessary in order for a sinner to be justified in the sight of a holy God. In other words, they denied the sufficiency of grace. And they denied the sufficiency of faith. And they denied the sufficiency of the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They denied the alones of the gospel. But Paul has already made it clear and he is going to make it clear at every step through Galatians. That it's the alones that make the gospel the gospel. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone is the gospel. Grace plus, faith plus, Jesus plus is not the gospel. And anyone, listen to me beloved, anyone who adds anything to grace, faith, and Christ is according to Paul, a false brother. Which in layman's terms means, is not saved. Listen, if I believe in grace, faith, and Christ, and you believe in grace, 
faith in Christ. But I believe that I'm saved because I've been circumcised, but you're not saved because you haven't. In the final analysis, the determining factor in salvation, according to me, is not grace, faith, in Christ. It's circumcision. That's the dividing line. And what I have now is no longer a salvation by grace, but a salvation by works. A salvation in which I can boast because I've done and you haven't. And the same holds true for anything that we might add to the gospel. Take baptism, for instance. If I believe in grace, faith, in Christ, and you believe in grace, faith, in Christ, but I'm saved because I've been baptized and you're unsaved because you haven't, baptism has just become the dividing line and is the determining factor, and I have a salvation which is by works and is not according to faith. If I believe in grace, faith, in Christ, you believe in grace, faith, in Christ, but I believe that I'm saved because my experience worked or looked in this particular way and I felt these particular things and you're probably not saved because your experience didn't look like mine and you didn't feel the same things, then feeling and experience has become the determining factor and now I have a salvation by feeling and not a salvation by faith. Anything that we might add, I'm saved because I walk the aisle, raise my hand, pray the prayer. You're, sa- you're not saved because it happened alone. And who was really there to, to verify this? That's just become the determining factor. And I think that I'm saved. And beloved, listen to me. Many hundreds, thousands of people, millions of people in evangelical churches think they're saved because they got out of their seats, walked up the aisle, prayed a prayer, got their name on a roll, show no fruits of regeneration. Because their faith is in their works and not in Christ. We need to be at pains to make sure in this church and in our evangelism that we don't even give the impression that salvation comes by any other way but free and sovereign grace resting by faith in Jesus' blood and righteousness alone. That's it. Just Faith. To add anything to the gospel of Christ is to lose the gospel entirely. And to lose the gospel is to lose any hope of salvation. Implication number two. A Jesus plus gospel is bondage. A Jesus alone gospel is freedom. Again, verse four. Paul says, but it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in. Who brought them in? Satan, I think is the implication. Secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. When works of any kind, to any degree, are introduced into our justification, one of two things results. Every time, either our boasting or our bondage. But God desires, by the gospels, why he designed it as an alone gospel, he wants to free us from both. Turn with me to Galatians 5, verse 3. Paul says, and I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Look back at Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse 10. 
For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by certain things, all things written in the book of the law to perform them. You can't pick and choose parts of the law that you want to add to faith as the basis for justification. You can't say, well, justification is by faith and circumcision, but nothing else. After we get past that, then it's grace. No, you're not allowed to pick out one aspect of the law which you can add to your faith so that you can have something still to boast in before God. He won't let you do it. His glory is too important. No, if you want to be justified by the law, you better have the intention of keeping the whole thing perfectly. And your holiness ought to be, must be pristine. And once you've introduced any of your own works, any of your own obedience, any of your own righteousness into the equation of justification as the grounds for you being right before God, listen to me what you've done, beloved. You have just thrown away all grounds for assurance of salvation. You will be in bondage to fear that you haven't done enough, that you haven't worked enough, that you haven't been obedient enough, that you haven't been righteous enough for God to accept you. And there will always be that one more thing that's got to be done, that one more hurdle that's got to be jumped in order for me to get into God's good graces. But you'll never cross it. And if you think that you've crossed it, then all of a sudden you look back and you see this hurdle that you've crossed and other people have, and you're like, it's because I'm better than them. And boasting results. Do you see, what, you see where I'm going? It's either boasting or bondage when it comes to works. There's no, there's no third level. Conversely, I would say there's an incredible freedom in knowing that my right standing before God this morning is based solely upon God's grace. His undeserved mercy for a sinner like me is based only on faith in the works of Christ alone. Nothing remains unfinished for me to be right before God. Nothing. All the work, all the obedience, all of the righteousness necessary to secure my everlasting justification was accomplished fully and finally when Christ died at the cross. So the true brethren, according to Paul, the sons and the daughters of freedom, we live our lives day by day under the banner which reads, it is finished. False brethren, the slaves of the law, they live every day under the banner of do more, be better, try harder, and maybe God will accept you. Consequently, as we're going to find out, the slaves of the law hate the sons of freedom because of our joy and our peace and the assurance of God's love towards us in Christ. And out of the hatred, they will seek to put us back into bondage, in bondage to the law so that we can be miserable like them. And I just want to, I just want to exhort you, saints of First Baptist Church, don't let them do it. Don't let anyone put you underneath the yoke of slavery again. 
Because it was for freedom that Christ has set you free. Watch very closely the gospel that you believe. Number three. There is a time to stand firm and fight. Verse five. Paul says we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour. So that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Churches usually fall off the road into one ditch or the other. On the one hand, they fight about everything because they think that everything is worth fighting for. On the other hand, they don't fight about anything because nothing's worth fighting for. The first error is a topic for another time. The second error concerns us this morning. There is a time for a church and there is a time for a believer to stand up and fight for the truth. And that time is when the truth of the gospel is in jeopardy. Now, I can, have, I can have real fellowship with those who disagree with me over the proper mode and subjects of baptism. I, I can have real fellowship with those who disagree with me over the, the particular ordering of end times events and the best way to interpret the millennium of Revelation 20. I, I can have real fellowship with those who disagree with me how the church should be structured and governed. I can have real fellowship and participate in real ministry with those who have different views on the gifts of the Spirit. But I cannot have fellowship with those with whom I have a fundamental disagreement on how sinners are made right with God. When the souls of men hang in the balance, we must be clear, we must be firm, and we must be exclusive. And there can be no yielding even for a moment when it comes to the truth of the gospel. Even if that puts us at odds within the church, it's worth it. Even if that puts us at odds with the rest of the association, it's worth it. Even if that puts us at odds with the Southern Baptist Convention, it's worth it. But we cannot give ground in the fight for the grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, law, free, gospel. Number four. There is no disunity among the apostles. This was a really big deal in Paul's day. And it is no less a deal in our day. You need to know that the gospel preached by Paul, Peter, James, John, and by Jesus himself is one and the same gospel. Because theologians, Bible scholars, college professors, pastors, they will sometimes try to drive a wedge between Paul and James, between Paul and Jesus. There, there is no such disunity. Each of the apostles, even our Lord himself, used different language, employed different metaphors, emphasized different aspects of salvation in the kingdom of God, but there is no disagreement. So I want you to hear what I'm saying. When Paul writes that justification is by faith alone apart from works, Romans 3.28, Galatians 2.16, right? Faith alone, no works. And James writes in James 2.24 that man is justified by works and not by faith alone. There is no contradiction. Now, we, we will need to do hard work to find out what both of them are saying and what they're not saying. But we know that there is no contradiction because if there had been such a fundamental disagreement, Paul comes in and says, 
we're made right with God by faith alone apart from works. And James says, no, we're made right with God by works and not by faith alone. They would not have extended the right hand of fellowship to one another. Do you see it? Paul and James considered there to be no disagreement between them and neither should we. No, the gospel of Peter, of Paul, of James, of John, and the gospel of Jesus are one and the same. There's no fracture in the apostolic foundation of the church. It is unified, it is secure, it is eternal, and it will hold up the church forever. Number five. True gospel ministries are always concerned for the poor. At the end of this passage, we could could skip over it if we weren't careful. At the end of this passage, after affirming Paul's ministry and Paul's gospel, the apostles ask him to remember the poor. And Paul says, that's great, because that's the very thing I, I was wanting to do. In fact, that's the very reason he was in Jerusalem in the first place. There's a famine coming. We brought money to, to give aid to the poor, the poor saints in Jerusalem. So I want to close this message with a reminder. We've been very doctrinal this morning. If you don't like that, then hold on, because we've got about two more months of that. Have you, have you read ahead? We're going to be digging into the, the deep theological details of the gospel so as to have a firm foundation on which to stand. But I want you to know that theology is not designed for an ivory tower. It touches real people with real needs, like Titus. The the theological knowledge that I hope to impart to you over the next two, three months is not intended to make you an armchair theologian who spends all of your time sipping coffee at Starbucks and debating the finer points of Calvin's Institutes. It's not what it's for. My intention and my prayer, should God will, is to fill your soul with a passion for this gospel and with a passion for Christ and with a passion for people and then to launch you out into the world to meet real needs and to alleviate real suffering. This is a working gospel. In other words, a person who has all of the theological details of the gospel right, but has no concern to relieve the suffering of the people in the real world, has not come to understand the gospel at all. The gospel is not some theoretical, abstract concept designed for debate. It sets us free from guilt and shame, and fear, and sets us free to walk out into a lost, and dying, and cursed, and suffering world, and offer people real hope. So do it. Take what we're learning, wrap it up inside your heart until it sets a flame, and then go and begin igniting the harvest field. Theology and practice, faith and works, they always belong together, but in their proper categories. A passion for justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and a passion for the poor, those are the two indispensable marks of a gospel-centered ministry.
And First Baptist Church of Nixa, Jesus is calling us to be one. Get our gospel right. Love the poor. And join them together. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, I thank you for this gospel. I thank you for this church that wants to know the gospel and wants to hear the gospel and wants to believe the gospel and wants to share the gospel. And I pray that you would help us to do that. Lord, my prayer as we close is very, very specific. I pray that by the power of the Spirit, that you would open up our hearts for our inspection, pick away every shadow that lays over it, shine the light of your Spirit in there, and reveal to us any work, any work, any of our own obedience, any of our own righteousness, which is vying for any of our hope and trust. And I pray that you would remove it. I pray that you would help us to come before you, hearts laid open bare, and to say, what is here in which I'm placing my faith? What is here that is not Christ? That I'm setting my hope of salvation on. And then remove it. I pray that we would be a people now and forevermore. Whose only hope of entering into the gates of your presence. Is that the Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood in atonement for my sin. And his righteousness covers all of my shame. I have no claim of righteousness. I have no claim of obedience. I have no claim of deservedness that I'm going to bring in my hands and present to you on the day of judgment. In my hand, no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, I come to thee for dress. Helpless, I look to thee for grace. Foul, I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, lest I die. That's the cry of the believing sinner. Would it be the cry on the hearts of every person here? Do that, I pray. In Jesus' name. Would you stand to your feet?